Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, 21st of July 2020. Mark Pender is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. I thought today we could kick off with a look at how Europe is finally trying to get its act together regarding the economic fallout from the COVID-19. So after 90 hours of often acrimonious discussions, EU leaders very early this morning, European time, signed off on a new recovery package worth some 750 billion euros, funded by what will be by far and away the largest ever issue of joint debt in the region. The 750 billion headline total was in line with the EU Commission's original proposal, but still well short of the 1 trillion euro plus that the ECB had previously suggested, and even getting agreement on this lower figure needed the longest summit in some 20 years. Moreover, reflecting the compromises required to get the package past the so-called Frugal Four, so that's Austria, Denmark, Sweden and the Netherlands, the grants component of the dispersed funds was paired to 390 billion euros. That's more than 100 billion euros less than what an earlier Franco-German initiative had hoped for and leaves loans to account for the remaining 360 billion euros. Even then, it also looks as if there were some sweeteners provided in terms of larger rebates for some countries on their contributions to the EU budget. So the good news then is that there has clearly been a positive step towards creating a harmonised, coordinated European fiscal policy. The not so good news is that the coronavirus has made policy splits between the member countries all the more obvious. The 750 billion euro package itself has been very slow in coming and it's worth only around 6% or so of EU GDP. It also still has to be approved by all 27 EU member parliaments, so its near-term impact will be minimal. What it means for financial markets is that there will be a now a new so-called coronavirus bond that investors will be able to purchase. And for the ECB, the deal is doubly good news, as not only does it mean that there is now at least a little less pressure to ease monetary policy further, but it also provides a new asset in sizable volume that it can use as part of its quantitative easing programme. The ECB left policy unchanged last Thursday and the likelihood has now increased at least slightly that they'll do the same again at their next meeting on September the 17th. So if I were a teacher, overall, I guess I'd give the plan a B plus. Not bad, but ultimately must try harder. Bond spreads in Europe have narrowed slightly today in reaction to the news and stock markets have rallied modestly, but that was probably at least partially due to the latest more optimistic news on getting a coronavirus vaccine. So on the whole, what about your side, Mark? Any any interest from the state side on what's going on in Europe? Oh, uh, well, certainly. Um, uh, the, the US, of course, is already... Uh, uh, established a, a broad package, uh, stimulus and a much package, larger one as well, a much larger one. And, uh, and, um, about three times the size, I guess. And, uh, uh, but now the question is that, uh, will there be a, a new, uh, stimulus package? Uh, and it's a interesting question for the U S because, uh, we had, uh, bounce back strength in May and June in consumer spending and employment, uh, but uh, and, and actual retail sales have actually returned to their levels in February, and I haven't found that anywhere else yet uh, in production numbers elsewhere or in uh, consumer spending numbers elsewhere. But will that 
continue or will that collapse now uh, in the month of, uh, of July? Um, so that's the question here. Uh, it's an election year. There's a lot of doubts whether or not uh, Washington will be able to put another package together, which would raise the risk then of deterioration. Um, going in to uh, the uh, November election, but um, but but let's talk about uh, Europe. First of all, it's just some um, nuts and bolts, if if you could, uh, uh, with the 27 members for in, for in, uh, for instance. The the first observation I have is that the UK was not part of this at, at all. Is that correct? That is correct. So we won't pay into it and we also won't get any benefit from it bar you know, the knock on effects of potentially slightly faster um, continental European growth. But you're right. The UK is not part of this. And there was no representation at all. No. OK. Now, there is other. The other question I have is uh, um, the, the, uh, the conservative part or the northern European part I was reading also includes uh, Finland and Sweden. Now, uh, what is their status in um, in the European Union, and um, and when, what is their approval, and, and why is their approval necessary? Well, um, in terms of the European Union, all members effectively have to agree when there's a, a significant shift in policy. Um, so, as far as Sweden's concerned, um, it's not a member of the eurozone, so it still has its own currency, the Swedish krona. It doesn't. It doesn't use the, the euro like all the eurozone member countries. Denmark. Um, well, that's part of the. Uh, that that's also. Um, part of the European Union. So again, that has a say in terms of what happens to overall policy. Um, now, again, they're not, it's not part of the Eurozone per se, although they effectively peg the Danish krona against the Euro, but you know, they are part of the wider European Union. So all these various member countries have a say in getting big packages through. And the big problem becomes the fact that any one member country could come out and issue a veto and all of a sudden the package doesn't work. So, for example, within this uh, particular uh, set of discussions, there were some major Major issues concerning the likes of Hungary and um, Poland mm -hmm. because the efforts to try and get attachments to basically acquiring some funds um, in terms of what's actually going on in your own country. And there's been a number of political difficulties between Brussels and some of the well, what's happening in way the media being treated, the law courts are being treated, mm -hmm. both Hungary mm -hmm. and Hungary and Poland, which have gone down very badly. But but this had a limited. Those two countries have had limited uh, COVID uh, troubles. Is that right? They have had, although it's got to be said, in, there are some patches, you know, sort of these clusters, as they call it, localized clusters, which have been springing up with, within the Eastern Bloc. Well, but, do, do uh, they stand to, to get any money from this? Um, they probably will do, yes. I mean, they're part of the European Union, and this is a European Union-wide recovery fund. It's not just the Eurozone. So, yes, they do stand to get money, um, depending upon you know, what state of, you know, the COVID is and so on going forward. But um, the initial, we don't know the full details of how it's going to be allocated yet, but it certainly looks as if uh, probably the, the two biggest um, recipients are going to be Spain and Italy, um, well, the, where yeah, and this is totally hit hardest. Is this is going to be a giveaway to those two uh, uh, a major uh, uh, what, what's the word I want relocation that's not the word of uh, money uh, from the from other states to those two states or uh, in yeah, effectively, yes. And effectively, I mean, if you like, you can see that everyone puts in 
but some people take out more than they put in. Now, mm-hmm. ultimately, of course, in terms mm-hmm. of you know putting in, is coming from the financial markets because this will be funded um, for the first time ever by you know this huge European joint debt initiative, which private investors can purchase, and obviously the ECB, you you can bet your bottom euro, they'll be busy mm-hmm. purchasing as well. But it'll be the first time that the European Commission has actually gone to financial markets to borrow with a view to dispersing mm-hmm. funds directly to its members. So, so, so the members are all uh, guaranteeing these bonds. Is that correct? Yeah, effectively, it's it's going to it's going to be pan-European sovereign debt. Now that means that it'll have an interest rate which would be, let's say, somewhat above where it would be if it was just a German debt issue. You know, so if, if it were in bonds, which effectively provide the lower benchmark for Europe, and would be somewhere between that and presumably somewhere be- between that and what we see on the likes of Italian BTBs. Um, and one of the main beneficiaries we've seen as a result of uh, today's um, announcement is that spreads between the harder financially regarded being more secure countries like Italy, sorry, like um, Germany rather, the, like, the likes of Austria. We have seen spreads between those countries and the Europe, so-called the, the, the Eurozone peripherals, the likes of Spain, Italy and Greece. Those spread differentials has been narrowing. And that's because of the fact that these less well-developed countries will be getting more funds um, on, on out of the allocation. Well, what uh, are the risks for, let's say, a Finnish uh, taxpayer? And what is the benefits uh, for a Finnish taxpayer? Well, the benefits at the end of the day, I suppose, you've got it on, on the broader basis, what's it going to mean for the, Euro- the European Union economic recovery? Now, Finland, by and large, as I understand it, has come out of the COVID-19 crisis pretty well. Um, and surprise, surprise, they've been one of that block of countries which has been, let's say, a lot more reticent about the size of the package than the likes of Italy and Spain were, who want to stand, stand um, to, to benefit the most. So you, we can really put but Finland in with Austria, Denmark, Sweden, and Netherlands, as uh, that group's called the Frugal Four, but essentially mm-hmm. you can put Finland in there as well, because they've been reluctant to, you know, to put funds into something mm-hmm. they're not effectively going to get back. So um, the Finnish taxpayer, how do they sell this to the Finnish taxpayer? Well, for the Finnish taxpayer, and, and this, of course, is going to be funded from financial markets. If they're if it's funded at very, very low interest rates, then it's essentially just the same as you know, the Finnish government going out and borrowing money with a view to stimulating its own economy. So, but this is done on a pan base, on a pan-European basis, rather than simply being localized. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the good thing I think for, for you know, all the borrowing members is that we haven't got massively wide spreads anymore between the likes of say of Germany and Italy, which mm-hmm. would have inevitably raised the average cost of you know, the coronavirus bonds, the interest rate, I should say, on the coronavirus bonds. If things stay as they are, the actual borrowing rate, like there's so much across around the world at the moment, is going to be very low. And to that extent, it actually makes it a sensible time to go out and do something like this. Well, well they have to pay the bonds back. Uh, uh, and who is that? Is that going to be a quantitative easing, uh, a printing of money by the ECB? No, almost certainly not. And that would be monetizing the debt, which um, the ECB is completely and utterly loath to do. No, this thing will come out, ultimately come out of the, the overall EU budget. So EU member states will have to pay into the budget to actually pay uh-huh. off these these, these um, coronavirus bonds ultimately. And so that, of course, will come out of individual members, mm-hmm. well, payment of taxes and so forth. So right. So the taxpayers in Northern, let's just make a generalization, are going to be funding this recovery for the southern states? 
in the simple, yeah, in its most simplistic form, yeah, that's right. Um, well, you know, well, you know the, the the comparison between the U.S. states and the European states is, uh, I guess, a metaphor or a conceit. But here in the U.S., there's not a a real a reallocation of wealth from, uh, uh, you know, the Northeast to the South to the Southeast. That that hasn't happened, but that apparently is happening in Europe. Well, I mean, this is, to be honest, this is the first real sign we've had in, in, in that kind of direction. Um, yes, I mean, taken at face value, this would suggest that Southern Europe is going to do relatively well out of this compared to Northern Europe. Now, for the likes of, for example, you put if you take the ECB view in all this, and as I mentioned just in the intro, that they're going to be more than happy about this because it means that we finally got some fiscal stimulus coming out of not on a coordinated basis, and they got new assets so they can keep expanding their balance sheet. But their view is when it comes, you know, push comes to shove, this is going to benefit the European Union as a whole. So even for those countries who perhaps put in more, they're going to get out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can benefit by virtue of the fact that European Union economic activity in general will be that much harder than it would have been otherwise, which will be to the benefit of everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other, I suppose, a caveat to this is just mention, when you look at it, I mean, it's, it's not it, well, I think on the whole, the, the politicians are talking it you now. This is historical pivot point and all this. Well, compared to what individual national governments like, say, the likes of Germany or Portugal have been doing on their own bat already, you know, just uh, just from their own budget deficits, they've done an awful lot more than this is going to amount to. So, yes, it's kind of politically, it's uh, something of the major step to see them all operating off the same or singing off the same hymn sheet for once. But it's still a relatively short hymn sheet. And as I mentioned say, in the introduction, it really looks as if some of those countries who really didn't want to see you know, the, the grant numbers being even as high as this, and they mm-hmm. managed to massage the grant share down, they've actually managed to wangle some larger rebates from their EU budget contributions. So you know, although they put more in, they've actually managed to claw a bit back at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's still very much a, a far from harmonious you know, package in terms of the way thing was put together. And that, I think, is, is still one of the big issues for the euro itself. Now, I've got to say the euro has reacted positively to this, not hugely so, but it has reacted positively. Although, again, there may be uh, underlying COVID-19 currents about what's happening to stateside in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, which cloud the picture. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still this kind of sense that Europe's got away with it today. But you know, mm-hmm. it's taken them four days to come out with an agreement on this thing, which was supposed to be a two day discussion. Mm-hmm. It was very nearly by a matter of about an hour or so. The longest ever EU summit has been just to try uh-huh. and get this thing sorted for well, what I, is ultimately not a massive package. Well, I have another. Yeah, well, that's interesting. But I uh, I have another question. When you look at the European data, it's I'm talking about economic data. Mm-hmm. There's contraction everywhere. It's just not Italy and Spain. And of course, if you look at the COVID numbers, well, Italy and Spain are the most severely impacted. But how economically did those two states suffer significantly more than uh, than Germany? Or uh, be, Yeah, I'd, I'd say on the basis, again, we've only got you know, limited, particularly limited hard data. Obviously, we've got you know, the surveys and things like that, which are you know, may or may not be right. But in terms of the hard data, what we can say so far, I think, is that Germany has actually got away with it quite well. 
um, in a sense that the downturn there has been relatively mild. If we look at the output uh, and the demand figures coming out the likes of Spain and Italy, the hit there was much harder. And within that, it's for Italy, for example, you've got the relatively wealthy northern part of Italy and you've got the much poorer southern part. And it's the southern part, again, which has been hit the hardest. So, you know, for a long time, there's been the issue within Italy of whether or not the north should be funding more to the south and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's been that sort of discussion, which in the past has even talked about you know, Italy breaking into two, you know, because perhaps northern Italy could stay in the eurozone and southern Italy mm -hmm. wanted to be out of it, etc., etc. <laughs> So I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a can of worms, this thing, which gyrate and different things happen at different times. Well, but I think it's fair to say that Italy and Spain in particular have suffered disproportionately. Well, a, a week from Friday, we're going to be getting GDP numbers out of Europe. They're going to include France, which may be doing better than anyone or at least, you know, have survived and Germany and also Italy. I mean, what are you going to be when you look at those numbers? What are your expectations? Well, they're going to be horrible. We know this. We, we know that. Um, I, but I is Italy going to be significantly worse? We got so little data, it's hard to say. But yeah, I would be very surprised if we don't see Italy being significantly worse than, let's say, somewhere like Germany. Almost, almost, almost certainly that's going to be the case. Um, I say it's hard to say because if you take something like Italian retail sales, they completely fell out of bed during the you know the first couple of months of the coronavirus. Um, but then when we got the main numbers coming in, they're up remember something like 24% on the months, mm -hmm. still leaving a big gap. But you know the data are so volatile at the moment, and yeah, you know, a fairly large chunk of some of these indicators is essentially being imputed by the stats guys, you yeah. know, effectively making them up. They don't know what they are. In, in the Italian stats guys are saying that we got hit the worst. So the, the word I wanted is reallocation uh, of wealth. Is mm -hmm. that what we're seeing here? Uh, from well, it is, yes. Ul yeah, ultimately, that's what it is. We're talking about, you know, the richer countries and those which have been less hard hit by COVID, you know, providing some help to those countries which have been harder hit, which at the end of the day is what this you know, whole European Union is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a united front where, you know, what one country within the European Union will be prepared to help another. The mm -hmm. problem, I think, that's coming out of this, it still suggests that individual countries, the way they negotiated over the weekend and, and through yesterday and, and overnight, it kind of intimates that, A, they want to maintain as much sovereignty over policy as they possibly can do. And B, they're always wanting to put, not surprisingly, you know, their economy, the good of their national economy before the good of the European Union as a whole. Okay, well, let, let's turn now. You, you had mentioned before about uh, uh, QE. Uh, uh, now they have another um, uh, batch of bonds to buy, the coronavirus bonds. Now, this to me is a hazy thing. They're not monetizing the debt, yet they're going to be significant owners of these uh, of, of these new issues. How much, what percentage do you, is the assumption, is the guess that the European Central Bank is going to be holding of these bonds? Well, at this stage, we don't know, but I suspect it's going to be, well, we've got to say it depends what the yield is for a start. I think one reason why we can say, just going back to talking earlier about the way these yield spreads between the likes of German bunds and Italian BTPs have narrowed so much is, yes, we got this package, which is good news for Italy, but also we're still in this environment whereby investors are desperate to try and find something with a positive yield on it. You know, uh -huh. Most of the German curve is still negative. So uh -huh. I think you know, for the coronavirus bond, if it comes out and is pursued 
to be offering a reasonable yield, you're going to get private sectors, private sector investors wanting to buy it, as well as the likes of the ECB. Um, my guess would be, given how much the ECB is buying these days, and obviously we've got this, what, this 20 billion a month net asset purchases through its old asset purchase program. We've got mm-hmm. this 100, what remains of 120 billion temporary envelope, as they call it, through year end. And of course, the all important um, pandemic emergency purchase program. There's a mm-hmm. lot of buying there that the ECB will be doing. So I expect they're going to end up, I don't know, a third or so of this is of, of the overall market, perhaps more than that. I really wow. don't okay. know at this stage. Okay. Well, another que- a question I have is this is a theoretical question. If the ECB didn't exist, if these were na- all individual na- uh, national governments, I presume that the ECB in its QE uh, program is helping to narrow uh, the spreads uh, b- uh, between the uh, peripherals. Yeah. And, and so they're keeping the, uh, the united front together. That's a very in- important part. Where would the yields be? Right now, if there was no ECB, if all if they were just individual national countries, you don't ask easy questions, do you? If you believe what the ECB have said, according to some of their surveys, um, they think I think the combination of their the asset purchase program we've had in the past, together with the current programs they've got running now, um, I think they talked about it having subtracted what 100 basis points or so off the level of yields compared to where they would have been other, you know, if they at least if they hadn't uh-huh. you know, in, intervened on the quantitative easing side. But of course, if we had just individual national governments doing their own things. Uh, doing their own thing, then you know, yields on on BTBs could well be I don't know five six percent or something like that now, because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have you know the the, the strength of the ECB behind it. Mm-hmm. People would be very nervous about Italy. You know, again, it's the old Jay's thing. What would happen if the eurozone fell apart? Now everyone would buy bonds. They might <laughs> buy uh, some Austrian debt, some French debt, and they would sell. Greece, Portugal, Italy, Spain, you know, the, the old candidates. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. you would see a huge widening of spreads and a big increase in yields. Uh-huh. Um, but you're right. I mean, and it's it's funny. You, you mentioned this thing about ECB keeping yield spreads down or helping to narrow these spreads. It is hugely important. And one of the first mistakes that Christine Lagarde made when she came in as the new ECD, ECB president um, after Mario Draghi, in one of her press conferences, she intimated that the ECB was not there to narrow yield spreads. And that saw the Italian BTP market being dumped. And she effectively had to come out just after that. And although without saying it's you know, completely saying the opposite thing, you know, uh-huh. various communiques were put out to the effect that it is very important that, that you know, spreads narrow because the ECB regards the spread as being an indicator of financial stability and everything else. Okay. So you can bet, you know, say your bottom dollar, the ECB is very much alert to the fact that it wants to see you know, the spreads narrow as far as possible as a sign of you know, financial market confidence um, in the way the euro is progressing. Now, this is going to be an awkward I'm going to present something that's a little awkward. Um, that is, does Italy and Spain just have their hands out? I mean, can they just, they're, you know, some people borrow, you know, uh, will take money and some people say, no, I insist, I'll pay it back. I mean, they're not going to be paying this back. And, um, well, well, I say it's it's a split, of course, as mentioned what in is, the intro. What, 400, 390 um, uh, billion euros are going uh, to be given away in grants? 
Yeah, that 390 in grants and 360 um, will be in loans. And that compares, say, originally, Germany and France, of course, will be a couple of countries that we're putting quite a lot into this. Um, they're desperate to keep this Euro European Union and the Eurozone together. They were calling for 500 billion worth of, of grants. And that was something this so-called frugal thought were completely against and wouldn't allow to go through. And there was, the no, there was no insistence anywhere on the periphery of these countries that, no, we, we, we do want to pay them back eventually. They're just going to take the money, uh, this reallocation. And, well, I and, think, yes, as far as the grants are concerned, that's it. You know, they regard it. Well, look, we're, we're really uh, in dire straits here due to the coronavirus. We need help. We're supposed to be part of a European Union. Where's the help from the centre? And prior to listing, there hasn't really been any help from help from the centre. Mm -hmm. So this is you know, an opportunity. It is at the end of the day for European politicians across the union to show that they are prepared to act as one. And I guess what I'm really getting at is this going to uh, trigger a, a nationalist, um, um, a political, uh, you know what I mean, in uh, in the northern part of Europe that, uh, you know, we have uh, other people in our family who are just taking our money. Yeah. It, well, I think we've been in that kind of environment for a while now. Um, yes, there's certainly going to be, you know, a move out of those countries which have to, you know, let's say dish up most of the dosh. Some people aren't going to yeah. like that. Having said which, of course, I still think the overall size of this package isn't that great. So it's going to give, I suppose, some grist to the mill of the more nationalistic side of the political spectrum, but not to the extent I wouldn't have thought that we should cause you know, the euro any real problems at this stage. Um, and I think I guess you can kind of see that from where the financial markets are operating at the moment. Because it remains to be seen if we have uh, the much talked about second wave yes. of COVID-19, it may turn out well, this 750 billion is nothing like enough in the first place. So where do we go from there? Yes, that's that's the that's the ultimate question. Now it seems like there's a sense of resolution, but with the there is there has been no resolution yet with the with the virus. Oh, that's right, and that's why I think you know it comes in you know, talking about the economic data at this stage. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for these central banks trying to forecast what's going to happen in the second half of the year when they're you know, setting their policy parameters because they've got no better idea than anybody else has. Mm -hmm. If we know there's going to be a vaccine that's going to work, then you can actually start perhaps to make some you know, sensible predictions. But at this stage, it really is up in the air. So, as as uh, uh, for the UK, I mean. Is, is there a sense of relief that <laughs> you got out in time? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a very mixed view. Of course, you know, as, as you know, the um, the vote on the EU referendum was so close. And since then, there's, I, don't, I guess most of the polls have suggested it's going into the, the election last December. Um, it's The polls suggest that the, the pros and the anti-Brexit sides are so close now that it is, it's hard to say. I think there's still a belief amongst those who thought we should be remaining in the European Union that they wish we were still in it. You know, for those people uh -huh. who thought, no, well, we shouldn't be part. We never want to be part of the Eurozone anyway. We should be out of the European Union, too. Then it was a good thing to do. And I guess uh -huh. to some extent you can say, you know, they found some support from the fact that the UK government did what it did. Uh -huh. And again, you know, it's launched a massive spending program over here, much more so, or umpteen times more so than we've seen coming out of the, Euro you know, the European Union Commission. Now, what, so, what does this mean for ongoing economic data? Where is where are the funds from the uh, coronavirus uh, bonds going to go? 
Is it going to be invested in infrastructure or? Well, yeah, exactly that. And most of this is supposed to be going into various forms of investment infrastructure. And as far as they can do it, they want to try and adopt this green policy whereby most of the expenditure, well, as far as they can do, is going to be directed more towards, you know, greener based companies and towards those companies or, you know, structures or institutions, wherever it may be, um, that uh, are less green, let's say. But we don't know. We don't at this stage know the details of what the allocations are. Okay. Um, what else should we be mentioning? I suppose quickly. Well, since we're on Europe, I should mention in terms of the data this week, um, it dominated very much uh, by the flash July consumer reports we'll get out of Germany and the EU Commission on Thursday. And in particular, of course, the flash July PMIs on Friday. Um, the composite output, flash composite one for July for the Eurozone as a whole is expected around about 51. So a return to positive growth taken literally, but from such a low level and uh, I guess such a weak rate that even if it's correct you'd you'd barely notice it so again it fits in the idea of certainly no v-shaped recovery in Europe at the moment what about your side well how about PMIs looking your side uh well the well we had the um the June PMIs the ISMs the Institute for Supply Management uh they uh, came in over 50 with uh, key readings and very strong new orders on uh throughout the um, manufacturing and non-manufacturing samples. Uh, the market uh, PMIs were more subdued, more around the 50 area. Um, but, uh, you know, sentiment here and I, I, is uh, kind of split. Uh, expectations are clearly uh, have receded the last few weeks uh, with the new op- uh, re- uh, restrictions uh, mm-hmm. and the um, really the unexpected uh, rise in, in in the virus, um, but the current conditions um, have been doing, you know, uh, compared to where they were in April, are are improving um, substantially. But but at the same time, these expectations, like on the Philadelphia Fed's expectations, um, this is a survey that goes back to 1967, and the uh, business expectations fell the first two weeks of um, July, like the fourth worst in, in history. There's been a lot of uh, tough times, and mm-hmm. we didn't really know that July was that much of a tough time, but it, it did take a toll. Now, um, this to return back to the coronavirus bonds. This, is this going to help uh, business expectations in Europe? And, and will consumer expectations also be helped? I think it held a little bit because, I mean, it's all over front pages of uh, European media today. So I think it will be seen, well, hey, look, we've got the EU Commission finally trying to do something about you know, helping the, the the region's economy. So I guess you know, that's got to be a positive. Um, how much of that actually feeds through into what I suspect is still somewhat dubious businesses and consumers, which may not fully understand what's going on anyway, um, that remains to be seen. But yes, I think you've got to say, if nothing else, it's, you know, it's a step in the right direction so it should be at least a small plus well you know and one last little question who thought of the grants who can't you know i mean that's kind of a nervy thought to uh to even think of right it's like you know you can have long-term loans and all and 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 different kinds of uh of those things but to actually give the money away uh when did that get into the conversation well that i think really came up um we go back into what two or three months or so ago now 
Um, and that came out of a Franco-German summit. So we had Macron and Merkel discussing or what needs to be done to address the coronavirus issue. And it was they who came out with the idea, let's say, mm. talking about 500 billion euros worth of grants. And there's, well, a couple of things to say about that, I suppose. One, they realised, at least had some appreciation of how bad the situation could be. But more importantly than that, since they both represent two of the, you know, but, well, the two largest countries or members of of the Eurozone, indeed, of the European Union. Um, so they knew that they would be putting money up front rather than taking it. It's also a reflection of the fact that they've become increasingly concerned about the political pressures or tensions between members that the coronavirus had brought about on the European Union. And mm. particularly by that, we're talking about the likes of Italy, whose government has gone out of its way to make it perfectly plain that it's been hugely disappointed with the way the European Union, the likes of the Commission have looked at its situation and, and given it some help. As far as Lichtig's government was concerned, well, look, we're in dire straits here. We need help. Where is it? And they hadn't received anything. And I think it was Franco, uh, France and Germany who realised that if we don't actually do something about this, it mm. could be the case that Italy pulls out the European Union. And, and, and those that two, is something they really don't want. And traditionally, those two countries, I guess, especially Germany and the idea that if they had their own currency, the mark, it would be uh, highly valued and it would uh, actually hurt their economy. So they see their interests in holding um, uh, Europe. To, they see their economic interests in holding Europe together. Is that right? They are. Yeah. France and Germany are desperate to make sure that this whole European project works, you know, period. And that to them, um, you can see in the way policy has been operated you know, in the last several years now. In fact, I mean, without Merkel, um, it's quite possible that, you know, the Eurozone might have fallen apart during the previous financial crisis. But mm. France and Germany are desperate you know, to make sure that the euro survives. What do you think of the, uh, the political cartoons? I can almost imagine, you know, the. Merkel had with a bag of money. Handing oh, it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, talk about going from a black hat to a white hat or something like that. I'm sure there's something you can do with that if you're good at artist. Yeah. Okay. I think we have probably prattled on for long enough now. So for oh, thanks anyone, for that. Thank you, Jeremy. No, not at all. And thanks to any anyone who's still listening. Um, so I think we'll end it there for today. Um, but but as always, we'll be back next week and in interim. All the key market moving data and events can be found in Conde's global economic calendar. From Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.